Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very excited to be joined by Dr. Jonathan Friedman today. Jonathan is the Director of Free Expression and Education at PEN America. He's got some interesting topics for us to talk about that intersection between freedom of speech, free expression, and what's going on in the world of education, whether it's K-12, higher ed, you name it. We're going to get into some interesting Supreme Court cases. I'm excited to have this conversation. Before we get into any of that, though, Jonathan, welcome to Trending in Education. Thanks, Mike. Happy to be here. Yeah. We had a fun conversation a little while back on This Week in Higher Ed. Uh, We caught up with uh, Dr. Terry Givens, who does really interesting uh, semi-regular webinar with me. And we had Jonathan on as a guest to talk about freedom of speech. Uh, That was back in November, right after the election. And it already feels like a lifetime ago. And then for our listeners, they may not have even heard that conversation. So some folks out there might not know Jonathan, uh, and I'd love to begin by getting in your own words, your origin story. How did you get to this point in your career, in your professional life? And I think there are a lot of ways in which where you are is certainly relevant to folks who care about the future of education. So can you begin that story, Jonathan, and then we'll go from there? Sure. It's always fun to reflect on one's origins. I've always been passionate about education, learning, and knowledge. And I think of my own uh, journey through education as one of accumulation of trying on new things and going in new directions. I was originally trained as a teacher. I came to NYU to pursue degrees in international education, where I did my doctorate in 2017. And a lot of my research and scholarship was on the sociology and history of American higher education and its engagements with the world. How do universities foster cross-cultural understanding? How do they increase opportunities for people to meet people, to learn about world history and diverse history and Mm -hmm. cross-cultural exchange? And the ways in which I think I've always been close to my own thinking at the importance of understanding across difference for you know peace or betterment or human thriving. And out of that PhD, I was looking to do work that continued to be meaningful. I joined PEN America in 2018 as the director of the Campus Free Speech Project, and it's recently expanded to focus on free expression and education more broadly conceived. And in that work, I've done workshops for faculty and administrators and with students on dozens of college campuses around the country. I have been advocating for free expression in higher education and thinking in particular in depth about the rising generation and how we restore faith in free speech for all. And that's how Mm -hmm. we talk a lot in our work here at Penn. Penn is a really fascinating organization that's almost 100 years old and part of an international network of Penn centers in something like 100 countries. Mm. And in each country, Penn sits at the intersection of free speech and championing literary expression. Our mission is to support diverse expression in literature and defend the civil liberties that make it possible. Mm -hmm. And so within that, we're a membership of artists, writers, journalists, scholars, professors, editors, playwrights around the country who believe in these dual principles. And so the organization has a strong artistic background, a strong global background, and a strong commitment to free expression and diversity. That's been basically the crux of a lot of the work that I've been doing in higher education and now expanding to high schools and young people. Yeah, yeah, it's a fascinating space, and the organization is uh, very simple to remember. It's pen.org, P-E-N dot O-R-G. I was was very pleased with uh, how easy it was to remember that, so 
you, you can tell an organization has been around for a while if they can have as, as simple a domain as pen.org. And then the intersection between free expression and education is a really ripe one these days on a number of fronts. You educated me coming in, and we're hopefully going to catch our listeners up now on a, a Supreme Court case that's on the horizon, BL versus Mahanoy district school systems. Can you catch our listeners up a bit on this uh, Supreme Court case and why it matters? Yeah, so BLV Mahanoy, uh, this is going to be the next big Supreme Court case regarding the regulation of speech of students in schools. BLV Mahanoy starts a few years ago. There is a ninth grader at a Pennsylvania school who is upset on the weekend that she didn't make the varsity cheerleading team. She takes to Snapchat to air her uh, disappointment at not making the team. And in a series of expletives, says essentially, fuck school, fuck cheerleading, Mm -hmm. fuck what I'm engaged. Now, it's a Snapchat. It's sent on a Saturday afternoon at a convenience store. And it is seen by about 250 friends. And the post is seen by uh, someone who shows it to one of the cheerleading coaches at the school. uh, And the school says that the post violates a policy that the student had signed on to uh, before even trying out for the team. And they use it as grounds for removing her uh, from the team for a year. So the punishment is no cheerleading. And the question is, is this her free speech? Is this her First Amendment right or not to swear and curse out her cheerleading uh, squad and her school on the weekend, on Snapchat, to her friends. Mm -hmm. And most of us would say that for adults, of course, that's free speech. That's the First Amendment. We would think that it's quite important that the government not impinge upon yeah. You know, everyday citizens' rights to swear about their jobs or right. their cheerleading teams. If, if I didn't make the cheerleading team, I would I'd be concerned what I might wind up tweeting. I also might delete it. And then it's interesting. Maybe I could just Snapchat it to begin with because BL was probably assuming since it's going to disappear, what harm is there in it anyway? What harm? And and it's fleeting, right? So Snapchat disappears and no one is, I doubt as a ninth grader, she's thinking this is going to get me kicked off cheerleading for a year, but I don't care. Or this is going to, I don't know, have some effect on my future beyond my life as a ninth grader. And so it was quite surprising. Her challenge, uh, she won at the local court and she won it, uh, the school district appealed. She won there as well. And now the school district has sent it up to the Supreme Court who accepted the case and uh, will be reviewing it at the end of this month. And the case really centers on this question of, is there any reasonable grounds when schools should have the right and the ability to punish students for their speech or regulate it. And historically, mm-hmm. the precedent is set in a case called Tinker uh, v. Des Moines. It's uh, the famous Tinker kids who wore armbands to school protesting the Vietnam War. They were told that they had to remove them. They refused. And that case went to the Supreme Court during the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the students won. And it was determined that the standard should be was set that as that the school could only regulate speech when it was found to be substantially or materially disrupting school operations curriculum okay. learning. When you look at BL's speech, she's not doing it in class. She only showed it to her friends. She didn't even deliberately send it to the cheerleading staff or anything yeah. like that. And so it would seem that this is outside of what we would think of as a, what a school is empowered to do. But the thing is that we've seen with social media tons and tons of these cases. It, it I'm surprised this is the one that's becoming 
the test case, the law history and what goes up to the Supreme Court is not always right. you know, perfect. And so we've seen actually a number of cases where you know, students are posting things on TikTok, they're posting things on Twitter, on Facebook. Sometimes they're engaging in hateful, misogynistic comments. Sometimes they're joking around with the N-word or yep. there was a number of young people making light of the murder of George Floyd last summer. Mm -hmm. And schools are wondering, is this allowed or is this it's quote unquote off campus speech, but doesn't it start to disrupt you know, what it is that schools do have a responsibility, not just yeah. a right, but a responsibility and obligation to mm -hmm. create an environment that's inclusive and safe, uh, where everyone can learn students of all backgrounds. The case that we're looking at now doesn't get into all of those broader issues. It's somewhat more focused on questions of on and off campus speech, questions of the internet, but also there's an interesting element here, which has to do with the sports team aspect. Maybe schools can't regulate off-campus speech, but if you're part of a team, there is an argument that they're supposed to be part of engaging in a spirit of fellowship, being right. a team player, yeah, not insulting your coaches, etc. representative so, of the school, yeah. And then it starts to get very interesting, the representative of the school argument. We've seen a number of cases elsewhere in the country this month or two involving students kneeling during uh, mm. the anthem and they're yeah. kneeling to protest racial injustice. Almost always, these are students of color. Mm. And at some colleges, they actually have suspended students. They At wow. Bluefield College, huh. they suspended the basketball team for kneeling during the national anthem. And, and in Tennessee, they're saying, once the students put on the jerseys, they are ambassadors for our university. They're ambassadors for our state. So they don't have free speech anymore. Wow. It gets, it's, it's very tricky. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And it de definitely gets my wheels turning. I thought if we could acquaint folks a bit more through your experiences with some of the emerging trends, hopefully we'll get you back to continue to track this stuff. Because what I find really fascinating is that even the issues we were talking about in, in November to what we're talking about now in April are a little bit different. The Supreme Court has changed. The Biden administration is now in place and new trends and new tendencies around some of these court cases will be interesting to track in the U.S. And then your point earlier about Penn being broader than uh, just the U.S. around these issues is also really interesting. Try to understand are there global trends around these types of issues, because in many ways, the pandemic has awakened a bit of a, a global sensibility where we're all battling this together. Another space, I know you've, your focus may have expanded beyond higher ed to include K-12 and other things, but you still have a deep expertise around trends around uh, free speech and free exp expression within higher ed. Anything new and noteworthy that you've been seeing uh, in that space? The, the thing in higher education is just, I think, the way in which the pandemic has worsened everyone's tolerance for mediating dispute mm -hmm. and resolving controversies. It has become so commonplace now to hear about professors who are afraid of what they're going to say in their Zoom lectures, that the students are recording it, that a wayward student or even just a misunderstanding could result in some kind of punishment is commonplace among many professors now who are wary about talking about a lot of things. So they learned uh, from the blowback that they received to be careful how they talk about Trump. They learned to be careful how they talk about all kinds of things, climate yeah. change, gender, sex, yeah. you know, race. race. Israel, Palestine. So there's just all sure. these issues that are lightning rods for controversy right now. And if you're not a particularly bold type, you're going to be much more timid around this because you're just seeing how poorly many universities are doing it standing up for professors. And so what happens a lot of the time, it isn't always that professors are turfed out, fired the next day, but you see a lot of mid-range responses. Universities administrators are under pressure to do something. So they'll mm -hmm. say, okay, let's pull you out of the classroom while we investigate. But it raises all these 
tricky questions. What is the grounds for investigation? Is a complaint from one student or a group of students enough? I think there are definitely circumstances where we would want the university to step in. And if there was a kind of harassment situation, or a situation with abuse, yeah. you would want the university to say, let's pull out this professor right away. But the, the, the challenge is how many of these cases don't seem to be that extreme, where maybe somebody did offend someone. I'm remembering a case a while back where a professor had shown a video in class that involved a joke, a distasteful joke about the Holocaust. And it it wasn't even a joke that she herself had made. It was like made by former students. She showed it to current students. Somebody got upset. The interesting thing is that the university pulled her out of teaching, but a whole bunch of the students got together and wrote a petition about how they didn't want her removed. They liked this teacher. They just, she apologized and that should have been the end of it. And I, I feel like that is the way these things used to be resolved. And somehow those interpersonal dispute resolution mechanisms are just fading. I don't know if it's, sometimes it's the students who don't really feel like they can bring issues to professors directly. Sometimes it's the administrators who are taking situations that don't necessarily require such escalation. And you can't always fault them for taking it seriously. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you do have this sense that there is just a kind of knee-jerk extremism in a lot of responses in a lot of places. Yeah. And that can result in a chilling effect where there's less openness, readiness to lean in to some of these real teaching moments that are emerging around like the uprising we saw around Black Lives Matter, where, you know, that is something that not talking about in essence is a, a, it's not really a form of speech. It's a choice that you're making that is limiting the learning opportunities and the opportunities to grow as a community that can address difficult issues. Is that one of the things that PEN America does uh, in the US and PEN more broadly is training and coaching to help avoid that chilling effect, to encourage an appropriate way to allow for these types of conversations to happen? Yeah, it is. And PEN is interesting in this sense in that We are kind of 1948 charter at Penn commits the organization to defend free speech, but also to work to dispel hatred. And we also have a long history of working to promote diversity and inclusion in the arts. And so it's this interesting intersection where what we've tried to really think through are practical ways that professors and administrators on the front lines can balance protections for free speech for all with a sense of appreciation and respect for and recognition of the need for an inclusive classroom, a diverse classroom, and that's where diversity in the broadest possible sense Mm -hmm. is a place where everyone can learn. The challenge is that we have this ideal that universities and colleges should be doing that, but you know, the question of how do you do that, it's actually, it's complicated. It's not intuitive. Notoriously, many teachers in secondary and primary schools spend a great deal of time working on the art of pedagogy, the art of teaching. But for many research professors, it is not always the case that they have a great deal of background in in teaching or opportunities to, you know, share best practices or professionally develop. We have developed at Penn a new multi-part professional development series for faculty. We're calling it the commitment to open and respectful classroom exchange. And so that's my way of signaling that I believe that the way forward on a lot of these issues isn't to put all of our eggs in diversity and inclusion or free speech, but to find a way to, to balance the two, that they can be balanced, that they must be balanced, and that really the two sets of principles are not actually that far apart. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to be 
training over the next year, a new cohorts of faculty in this program. We're piloting it for the rest of 2021. And the goal is really to not just tell professors, you must do this, or you must do that, but to help them get comfortable, to help them develop and hone in and just be exposed to different ways to facilitate discussion, to be reflexive about their own uh, political beliefs, to ensure that their classrooms are open to all kinds of ideas and any ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, that's not easy. It doesn't come intuitively to most people. And mm -hmm. that's a big focus of our work right now. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. The other topic that is in the news a lot lately, and I think it does have free expression implications, is how do we teach history? Whose history is being taught? Generally, it's a conversation that begins in K-12. So I imagine as you're expanding to look at free expression and education at Pan America. It's also an issue in higher ed, but it's really cuts across uh, the gamut there. And any thoughts on that, particularly in light of uh, some of the challenges we faced around alternative histories and the fake news and some of the issues we have around really a crisis of trust in our institutions that we're facing these days? Any perspective on how we may begin to navigate this heading into the 2020s? It's a crisis of trust. It's a crisis around truth also mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. historical truth. And I think that it's very dynamic. My observations of the field of actors active on the issues of campus free speech is that it's always been very dynamic. It's very politicized. You have people trying to capture one another from the left or the right when they have transgressed in some way and make them pay for it. And yeah. I think that atmosphere has, I don't think there's any question that the right and the Republican Party has been much stronger in trying to turn to legislative answers. So we saw this with the Trump administration. We saw it with many state uh, governments during the Trump years. And now we're seeing that battle continue. Mm -hmm. And the intriguing thing is that we have many state legislatures who would espouse, you know, fealty to the First Amendment and free speech. Yet they are also passing these laws or proposing to pass laws, which would circumscribe how it is we talk about history and whose history we teach. And so yeah. the most widespread version of that we're seeing right now is uh, a number of bills since the beginning of the year being introduced in different states, about eight to 10 states now have them, which propose to ban what are called, I put in air quotes, divisive concepts. And there's a long list of what are divisive concepts, which you can or can't say. But I'll read you the one that I find the most alarming, which is that it would bother are schools from having any lessons, okay, whereby any individual feels discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress on account of his or her race or sex. So that's a clause in many of these bills. Yeah, I, I, exactly. I, I, it's surprising, right? You're, you're Sorry, uh, for our listeners, I made a quizzical uh, expression there. That was surprising <laughs> to me because it felt very broad. Yeah. It's very, it's not just very broad. This is the party that has been, you might remember a few years ago, introducing the language of the snowflakes, the mm -hmm. people who can't stand up, can't handle difficult ideas, discomfort. And I actually, I think on a lot of campuses, that has been a challenge. You know, sure. you, when people, it's never easy to teach in a room full of people if you're constantly concerned about how they might be offended and how that might, you know, imperil the conversation. So you have to have some latitude to be a little bit provocative and interesting and creative. But the notion that we should have a law whereby if you feel anyone in the room feels discomfort, guilt, anguish, or psychological distress as a result, if you say it's as a result of something I said or something right. that we discussed in class, and that that would be prohibited by 
law, it's highly concerning. And it's highly concerning for any conversations about racism or sexism yeah. or, or historical truths. And so you get to this point where you start to, to question, how is it that this political party in so many parts of it is with the right hand talking about free speech and with the left hand introducing what would be bills that you know are so obviously infringing on free speech. A lot of the bills are they're also contradictory. So they'll, they sometimes have these clauses that say nothing in this bill should be construed as, in, as infringing on academic conversations in which you'll have or is infringing on free speech. The, you can't, how, how are both clauses going to be? It's going to be immediately challenged. And it, it, if nothing else, the confusion is you might think of it as a political tactic to chill speech, because what it means is if you don't if it's not clear how you're going to run afoul of such a law, the best bet is to not go yeah. anywhere close to it. So you just right. we won't talk about slavery. Let's not talk about lynching. Let's not talk about, I don't know, whatever other horrible genocide. Let's not talk about anything that that someone would construe as in some way causing this discomfort, guilt, mm -hmm. anguish, etc. The bills are hypocritical. They're incredibly contradictory. And there, it's an obvious political, you know, effort to silence conversations that have been growing around diversity, equity, and inclusion in schools. Yeah. Uh, and that's highly concerning. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've done a nice job, I think, surfacing a lot of these topics around uh, free speech, free expression, and education. If someone's activated based on this conversation, they want to do more, they want to see how they can maybe impact things a little bit more rather than just have their consciousness raised. Do you have any recommendations? Like what are the right tactics to take to uh, try to affect some change as it relates to uh, some of these challenging in intersections between free expression and education? I think there's no question that the moment for civic activation is here. I think this is what we've seen from the legacy of the Trump administration and the protests of the past year. And we just, it has to continue. We can't go back. There's a, a great deal of grassroots organizing right now around many of these bills. There's a great deal of grassroots organizing. We, we mentioned the bills, but there's also organizing of parents groups at the school level and school board levels against anything that appears to have a whiff of diversity to it. This has results sometimes in efforts to ban books from schools. There's a, a, a Texas death district right now, which has banned, which removed six books featuring diverse characters or written by diverse authors from its high school reading list just in the past few weeks. And it's an ongoing, they call it an ongoing review. It looks like an ongoing purge. And uh, so what we're doing at Penn is we're really trying to monitor these events, track these events and find opportunities to speak out and help communities around the country speak out, whether that's writing elected officials, whether it's signing petitions, whether it's taking to social media. And I, I encourage your listeners, if they're interested in following our work to uh, follow us on pen.org or uh, my, me on Twitter at Jay-Z Friedman. Awesome. Yeah, really good stuff. Before we let you go, Jonathan, I always love to ask my guests, what else in the world is capturing your imagination these days that you think is relevant to, to this conversation? So is there anything else out there, maybe further on the horizon or surprising or different that you want to uh, impart before we wrap up here? I'll just tell you that the, the honest truth is I've been looking and, and learning more and more about the history of free speech before the 20th century in American history. And it's absolutely fascinating. I think that we have completely um, cut off teaching and learning about what happened before the 20th century with regard to free speech. There's not much talk right anymore about or recognition that the effort to, for example, abolish slavery 
was laden with free speech controversies with people publishing materials and having elected officials and postmaster general not deliver them with violent mobs who who were so opposed to the idea of the abolition of slavery that they trampled upon any such speech whatsoever. And I think those stories and those histories are really very interesting. And, and mm -hmm. I've been reading more and more about them myself. Yeah, and important for us to remember as well, because your point about one, one aspect of speech is to make sure that histories and perspectives are not erased or forgotten. And in many ways, there are deep histories where we're not the first folks to encounter some of the challenges that we're facing. No one's really faced it in this profusion of new media and all these other topics that are relevant to our times these days, but there's quite a bit to learn from the history. And, and hopefully folks are intrigued now. They'll visit pen.org. They'll track Jonathan on Twitter and, and hopefully we'll be able to continue this conversation with you in the future, Jonathan. Thanks so much for joining us uh, on today's episode. Thanks, Mike. Great to be here. And for our listeners, hopefully you enjoyed uh, what you heard. If, you, if you're intrigued, if you have something to say, exercise your right and uh, tweet at us at Trending in Ed. Follow me on LinkedIn. Let me know when I post this on LinkedIn. We'd love to hear from you what your perspective is. And hopefully uh, with help from folks like Jonathan and Penn America, we'll all get better at facilitating conversations and uh, getting better through the conversation. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. <music>